years come and go and I'm forever grateful Come and tell me long and slow exactly what I wait for Better times, yeah, better times, somehow I don't believe it I built a house up long ago just to up and leave it If you're connected to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever through our social media channels, then you know April is Bird Dogs for Habitat Month. Our Bird Dog Popularity Contest devoted to raising funds for our wildlife habitat mission. And this year's wrinkle is that all Bird Dogs for Habitat contributions are being pointed toward our Build a Wildlife Area program. So on today's episode, I thought it'd be insightful for our listeners to learn a little bit more about what the Build a Wildlife Area program is. And to help me do that, to help me break down the public land habitat creation tool that is Build a Wildlife Area, we've got our very own Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's John Locks and Eric Sitzma. Fellas, thanks very much for, for making time to to join me today. I know you're both lovers of bird dogs with competing breeds, or are they? Um, we'll uh, we'll talk about that. But let's um, let's introduce you both first. Uh, John, you haven't been on. It. I'm trying to remember. You've been on the Rooster Road Trip a number of times with us, but I don't think you've ever done a podcast before, have you? I don't think so. Yeah, it's my first time. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to, to chat with you guys today. So tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, which you're a relatively new employee of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. So tell us a little bit about who you are. Correct. So yeah, I started with the organization back in early December. So I am kind of that rookie on the team per se. But um, prior to that, I worked for roughly 14 years with uh, the state agency in Nebraska, Nebraska Game of Parks. Um, worked in a couple different capacities with the state. Started out as a, a private lands biologist where I, you know, covered about a, a 10 county region, working with private landowners, uh, putting CRP on the ground. and worked a lot with our, our walk-in program, Open Fields and Waters. Um, then about two, 2016, I moved up into a, a program manager role in our Upland Game program. So I, I kind of took on statewide responsibilities to coordinate our Upland Habitat initiatives, our public access initiatives, and then I was involved in research as well. So um, a lot of years with the state, um, met a lot, of, a lot of good people around the country, a lot of good contacts, which just came in pretty handy for, for my current role. So, Yeah. Ed, tell us about your current role, because I think... I think you're in year, or I'm sorry, not, you're in month, like number four now, right? Correct. Yep. And I, I pride myself on having the longest, uh, longest running title of anyone in our organization. So <laughs> I, I almost have to look at this on paper when I say it, but uh, I'm our permanent <laughs> habitat protection program manager. That's a, a mouthful. Um, but I, I work directly with, with Eric. Uh, together, we help coordinate our build a wildlife area program for the organization, which is our fee title acquisition program. And ultimately, um, you know, it's our primary mechanism to per permanently protect habitat and increase public public hunting access. Um, I guess in, in the short time I've been on, um, it's pretty exciting. Coming on at this time is really exciting because uh, our program is expanding. So we have a, a pretty strong footprint throughout the Midwest. Uh, we're really looking to expand the program in other parts of the country. So we've been working with state coordinators and delivery teams to build out strategies in each state to really, you know, make the program blow up. Habitat Protections Program Manager. Did you, did you get a cape when you were hired for that role? I should have. Something. It sounds like <laughs> sounds like you should get a cape or like Wonder Woman bracelets or something to. I know it. <laughs> it's like a superhero's title. I, I always have to think about it twice when somebody asks me what my job is. I have to. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Well, at the at the exact same time, and I, in 20 years with the organization, I don't remember two positions being created like your position in tandem with Eric's position. It, it They were created at the same time for two different departments, fundraising and conservation operations to work together. So I'm going to come back to bird dogs, but I'm going to let um, Eric introduce Eric. This is, I believe your second podcast here recently, right? So you, you were a regional representative for us in Iowa. Tell us a little bit about your backstory. Yeah, so I uh, I started with the organization back in 2010 as a uh, farm bill biologist. Uh, I was lucky enough to start right in my hometown of Oskaloosa, Iowa, where I'm still at. You know, lucky enough to, to live around family and friends where I grew up. And I did the, uh, the farm bill biologist gig for about four and a half years before taking the Southern Iowa regional representative position over. And I was a, a regional rep working with chapter volunteers. And I did that uh, up until November of last year when I started this job. And, you know, that was, that was a really big catalyst for me. You know, our, we have some of the most passionate volunteers that you'll ever meet and working with them to help fundraise and to help generate, you know, memberships and interest in the uplands and habitat protection and conservation. You know, that passion yeah, is often directed towards land acquisition. Mm -hmm. You know, I, being from Iowa, you know, in the Midwest, it, it's an ag state and access to public quality habitat is always a huge priority for our volunteers and for our membership as a whole. So working with them really helped me get involved in working with Matt Holland and the rest of the team here at PFQF and, and trying to secure more public access and, and make sure that uh, we had those opportunities for the general public. Yeah, it's interesting. You both have really unique backgrounds. And one of the things that I believe is magical about our organization's approach to conservation and all all conservation groups do this to some degree but what i really think is secret sauce for us is the the private lands habitat approach through farm bill biologists and crp that the farm bill and you both have deep understanding of that through being a farm bill biologist working for a state agency to enroll acres in walk-in programming you know private lands improving the habitat in some cases adding a layer of public access to it which john did in nebraska with open fields and waters which is you know one of the best state-driven uh, access programs for private land in the country I've, I've raved about it on this on this podcast for years i just i think it's superior but at this the, the other half of our organization in the kind of the new evolution of both of your jobs is the public lands creators role. The, the role where, you know, we we're creating land that'll be open for public access forever through acquisition, through easements. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a person that grew up never owning really any land other than the one acre my house sits on right so whether it's you know prairie grouse forest grouse pheasants quail like i'm a public land hunter um and and i am really in love with our organization's ability to create more public lands out there for all of us to enjoy and that protects critical habitat for pheasants, for quail, for prairie grouse, for pollinators, for what uh, waterfall, whitetails—you name it. I just, I, I think that magical recipe of doing both, and you both embody that. That's a really cool, um, kind of a combination of assets that you bring to the table. I mean, John, react to that thought. Like, I went on a big diatribe there, but you have to. You have to see that in your own in yourself too, right? Like you're ultimately the end goal is habitat in whether it's private land or public lands, you've got background in both. Agreed. I mean, they, they go hand in hand. And I think that, uh, you know, 
the fact that that public access has been elevated by the organization is huge, mm-hmm. you know, and it speaks to our membership and and what they what they demand, what they want, you know, to see on the landscape, and the fact that we have have devoted, you know, new resources towards that, new positions in our case, but uh, a program that's expanding throughout the country. It's it's really exciting. So yeah, yeah, it, it, and you mentioned you know, the organization sort of has elevated access. We've been doing access oriented things since the very beginning. I mean, you can date back to Pheasant Run 1, which is a land acquisition in Nobles County, Minnesota, I believe was 1986. The organization was founded in 1982. 1986 was our first land acquisition, but the word access wasn't actually in our mission statement until um, nope. I think it got added in the winter of 2019 to our mission statement. And now if you go on our websites, pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org, you see the word access there. It's always been part of the ingredients or the fabric of the organization, but it is like, hey, we got to take credit for this and rally around it more than ever before. It was part of the call of the Uplands campaign and and it's uh, fundamentally part of both of your positions. Uh, I mentioned Bird Dogs for Habitat. It's a campaign we've been doing um, on an annual basis since 2010. What's new this year is that all donations to Bird Dogs for Habitat are going towards um, uh, the Build a Wildlife Area. So since we're doing intros... We'll bounce back to Eric, and uh, this is your opportunity to lobby for your bird dog of choice to um, get folks to make a contribution uh, towards uh, towards breeds. Tell us uh, what's your bird dog of choice. You know, I've working for PF. You get to hunt behind a, a big variety, and I, honestly, I love them all. I I have a German short hair named Dutch. So if you hear somebody shaking his ears in the background, that was him. And I've got an English setter named Spec. So technically, I guess I have two uh, <laughs> breeds of choice. And I, I do vote, vote for both of them in this as you know, as the fundraiser is going on. But, uh, but yeah, I've got two, two dogs, they're both right about six years old. And uh, they're both awesome. I bring them both around. And it's, it's a lot of fun. Right on. Right on. So English setter and a short hair. John, what are, what's your breed? Yeah. So the main reason Eric and I get along is because I'm a setter man too. So I have a, <laughs> I have a Llewellyn um, named Lucy. She's, she's five and uh, she's a ball of fire. So um, I'm surprised I didn't bring her up before my, my, whenever I'm on, uh, I've been on other podcasts or other things. I usually mention my dog before my family. Uh, so I get a lot of crap with that. But, uh, yeah, um, I didn't mention earlier, but I do live in South Central Nebraska, have a beautiful wife, three kids, and an awesome dog. So, there, I hit, I hit all, all my bases. Yeah, way to recover. Well, as I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at the, uh, the current leaderboard, uh, the German shorthairs, as we record this on April the 7th, have a, uh, have a sizable lead at the moment. They're, they're trying to go... I think this would be back to back to back to back a four peat. Um, Britneys are in second, Labradors in third. Labradors have won in the past. Britneys have not, so they're making a, a run for the money. Um, English setters have won before, but they're 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 ways down the list. Actually, Llewellyn setter has more votes at the moment than. Um, than English setters. So, so setters have got some love, but they need a little bit more. So hopefully, um, both of you guys owning setters will, will help out. Um, I will point people, uh, back again to birddogsforhabitat.org. It goes on through April the 30th and we're challenging people to cast a vote through the donation of a dollar, twenty dollars, fifty dollars, five hundred dollars. Every dollar you donate equals a vote on behalf of your favorite breed. We've got all kinds of different prizes associated with dollar amounts. And this week is the Perina week. If you make a contribution 
during this week, the second week of Bird Dogs for Habitat, you qualify as a potential winner of a year's supply of Perina Pro, Pro Plan. So that's 12 bags of Perina Pro Plan, 12 certificates for uh, Perina Pro Plan. So head on over to birddogsforhabitat.org to vote. And thanks to our partners at Perina Pro Plan, Orvis, Sport Dog Brand, Rufflin Kennels, and the North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association. All right, so let's get into the nitty-gritty here. We're going to start with John. All right, tell us how, you know, it's been a, it's been a while since we talked specifically on this podcast about how Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever do land acquisitions. You have to, you, we, we dove really deep in episode number one of the podcast with Aaron Sandquist. So if you want to um, take a deep, deep dive Go all the way back to the very first episode with Aaron. But give us an overview, John, of how land acquisitions work at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Yeah, so so in general, uh, we have kind of three different approaches to land acquisition. You know, one of those is, is a facilitated partner acquisition. That was historically, you know, what we did. Uh, a project came up, partners rallied, and we kicked in money towards it. Um, now that we've kind of taken a more proactive approach, our, our new methods or more commonly used methods are uh, what we refer to as like our revolving or our transitional land. So in that case, we, we purchase the land, um, we hold title temporarily, and then we transfer the property to a trusted partner, which is generally Fish and Wildlife Service or the, the state agency. Uh, a third approach that we've, we've used less frequently, but in certain cases it comes into play is where we purchase the land and then hold title uh, long-term, where we would assume, assume the uh, long-term management and ultimately stewardship of the, of the property. So those are kind of the three methods we employ. Um, projects come up in a, in a wide variety of ways. Sometimes we actively seek those out, whether it's our staff or Eric and I, uh, other times they come to us, partners bring us projects, chapter members bring us projects. Uh, a lot of times landowners bring our projects. There's obviously a, a big part of our, our membership are, are uh, landowners and believe many people believe in our mission. They come to us, uh, they wanna donate or sell their land, you know, and work with PFQF. So that's that's pretty cool as well. Um, you know, the first thing when a, when a property comes up, a potential acquisition, is is we internally vet that that project so we we really need to make sure that it aligns with our mission there's a lot of properties out there that are you know a slam dunk the minute you hear about them they they're just they're perfect there's a lot of others uh that don't and so uh, a big part of that is thinking through uh we develop like some national guidance around this but ultimately you know a, a common theme is like does it, does it border another piece of public land? Can we ultimately expand an existing area? Can we connect habitat? Can we build on past investments? Um, we've used this to secure access to landlocked parcels. Um, and then we look at the, the habitat side of it. You know, uh, we're in the game of upland game birds. Does it provide quality upland game bird habitat? Will it provide quality upland hunting opportunities? Um, a lot of times we look at you know, certain landscapes, certain habitat types of, of uh, importance, things like remnant prairie, wetlands, things like that. Um, and what I'm getting at with, with all of these things is it's kind of like a, I, I think of it as a list of check boxes. And, and the more of those you can check off, the more support you're going to have. Uh, but in a sense, that makes us very strategic in our approach. You know, we're not just, you know, buying up ground here and there and taking everything that comes to us. It's, it's a very strategic approach. We want, we want these to be high quality acres uh, that are protected for the right reason, have quality habitat and are going to provide some awesome hunting opportunities in perpetuity. So. Yeah. A couple of things that I want to <clears throat> emphasize there. It's they're um, done with willing sellers, right? Correct. People that, um, that, that want to sell their land it's not like we're coming in there and throwing down a wad of cash that just doesn't happen with nonprofits, right so so that sure. but it's willing sellers a lot of times you mentioned it's uh, it's people that own the land 
and they want to see it have a wildlife um, see it as wildlife habitat in perpetuity. You know, they've in many, many cases, and I've taken these phone calls where it's people that have, you know, maybe they have a combo operation, but they've done some work on their property to improve the land with nesting cover, with shelter belts, restored wetlands. And now they have kind of a Noah's Ark of wildlife in their own area. And they're like, I put so much heart and soul into this and when you know maybe they don't have children and they they want to pass it along to to an organization like us to make sure that it stays a habitat mecca in perpetuity so that's one way and i'll come back to the eric with that because that's kind of the combination of how some of this happens the other thing you mentioned is agencies you know that we work in partnership with agencies that you know, a lot of times they are to help build complexes, especially when property right next to a growing complex of like a WMA or WPA property right next to it comes into play as a landowner wants that to be an addition. Like we can help facilitate that. That's an important um, piece. Do you also mentioned landlocked, which was not a word I think about this, John, like five years ago, the word landlocked, I never even heard of it, right? So so credit to Onyx and TRCP um, for really, you know, coining a term that, you know, we've done work to help open up properties that, you know, public land surrounded by private land in creating um, an additional wildlife area or an easement to open it up for so people can utilize it so and then the last thing i was thinking about as you were talking about the ecological or the natural resource benefits you know we don't necessarily have it with pheasants and quail but we do have it with some of our prairie birds like the word lek and you know leks are where the dancing grounds for um for sharp tails and prairie chickens lesser prairie chickens and sage grouse and like they're fundamentally places that these birds come back to every single year and they're critical right and 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 we can put pin dots on maps and know where they exist and when those properties come up it underscores the critical nature of that habitat for a species and that makes it I'm using Lex as one particular example, but that makes it really valuable too. I've, I've droned on a little bit, but but that adds a little bit of more color to what you're talking about, doesn't it, John? That's that's a great example, and and I think there's it, one thing that's been really interesting as as we've built out these strategies in different states is is how different states prioritize their acquisitions. You know, some mm. of that is built around where they're where their human population is or where there's a lack of public lands or, you know, all those obvious things I mentioned earlier, you know, building onto complexes and things like that. But there's a lot of things that uh, you don't really, you don't really connect um, things like in the Southeast gopher tortoise habitat and how right. that, uh, how that aligns with, with quail habitat. And there's a number of those examples where you have a lot of groups, uh, sometimes a state agency that is solely interested in in that and Mm -hmm. where we can find overlap with the species that we love and care about uh that's a win-win you know what i mean so that that's a really interesting part of all these discussions throughout the country is everybody looks at it a little different way Mm -hmm. Uh, there's different partners involved different funding sources come into play um so that's that's the fun part is kind of piecing that together and finding finding where we can work together yeah, you described it as sort of a list and you're checking, you know, a check yeah. mark next to this list. One of the, it's probably, let's be honest about it, one of the top elements that we got to check off is funding, right? Because if there's no funding or a seller that doesn't want that land to to be transferred over, well, the rest of the list becomes somewhat um, burdensome or maybe even a moot point. So let's... Eric, you know, when we talk about funding, I think about things like, again, willing seller, a, a, don- a donation component, 
I think about match. Um, explain your thought process when it, when it comes to land acquisition from a funding side of things. You know, it, it, it's fun because I swear that every project seems to come around a little bit differently. And, you know, now that I've, I've moved from working in Iowa to, you know, working nationwide, uh, that approach is even more important. When you're building a project and, and that project comes in, you know, we, we determine if it's going to check enough boxes where it's going to be a priority. You know, if it'd be a good fit within our program or our partners programs. And, and then the next step is figuring out how do we actually make that project happen. And that comes down to working with that state team, working with our, our regional representatives, our development officers, and our partners to figure out how we're going to, you know, physically fund that project. Mm -hmm. As a regional rep, of course, and, and working with volunteers for most of a decade, I'd, I'd be doing a poor job if I didn't start off by talking about our chapters. Mm -hmm. You know, not only are there huge advocates out there for our acquisition programs and for Habitat, uh, but in most of the other funding sources that we're looking at, you know, John mentioned state agencies, the Fish and Wildlife Service, you know, it always is going to require some sort of non-governmental match. And the number one place we've leaned uh, for that non-governmental match has, has started off with chapters. Mm -hmm. Not only are they advocates, but they bring a great community buy-in to those projects. And they're generally the ones tied to that local landscape that can help us identify priority projects. So yeah, we, we have funding coming in from chapters. Another great source is uh, donations by individuals and companies who either support build a wildlife area. You know, you can go on our website and donate. You can, you know, participate in, uh, our current dog popularity contest mm -hmm. as you, uh, you know, as you coined it, you can hop on and vote for setters or short hairs or any of the other breeds, um, you know, but we even have landowners who as part of this process will incorporate a land value donation. So they will, you know, basically discount sale of property to the organization because they're invested in seeing it protected and mm -hmm. seeing it uh, conserved in perpetuity. And not only is that beneficial to us, but that's beneficial, you know, to the landowner as part of, you know, their own financial advisors plan for how they're going to manage their own, uh, their own estate. Mm -hmm. You know, after that, we go to, to really the, the huge sources, and this is where it ties into all of the other departments in the organization. You know, land acquisition is a huge team game, and that's what makes it a lot of fun. You know, when you're looking at, at grant funding, you mentioned Aaron Sandquist. His team up in Minnesota are, are the primary example in our organization of utilizing state level grant funds, utilizing NACA funds, mm -hmm. yeah, North American Wetland Conservation Act funds. You know, there's a lot of money that can be directed towards upland habitat and working with those partners to help utilize those funds is a great opportunity. We've got partner funding, a lot of our, our state agencies and federal agencies, Fish and Wildlife Service, like in Iowa, the Iowa DNR, or even in Iowa, we have county conservation boards, you know, and those agencies have budgets in a lot of cases to add public land. So we can work with them and help stretch their dollars as well and, and help partner there to facilitate those acquisitions and make them happen. And we also, you know, you've mentioned them before, but I'm gonna bring them up again. You know, we've got corporate partners that support mm -hmm. this organization off the top of my head, Purina and Onyx come to mind. Mm -hmm. We were at Pheasant Fest. We had a great party hosted by Onyx you know, to support land acquisition there in Minnesota. You know, and we couldn't do what we do without those partners as well. So coming up with that team strategy on how we're going to find that funding, figuring out the timeline, it's really complex, but it's a lot of fun because it allows our partners our supporters to invest in something they care about a lot. And then they can go out and physically explore it, see it, bring friends out there, go yeah. hunting, bring their dogs. Yeah, right on. Sport Dog also has supported uh, the acquisition, uh, the Kessler acquisition. Yeah. Yep. Sport Dog's just partner in Bird Dogs for Habitat. I want to circle um, uh, underscore Onyx. Um, you mentioned their, their 40X party at um, National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic here just a couple months ago in, in Twin Cities. 
explain the 40x component and how that works how onyx's contribution can be um you know exponentially utilized for land acquisition yeah so you know minnesota is and the i would call it the extreme example where they have uh, a very well coordinated team a very well coordinated donor base but they also have a, a huge support system for uh, state level conservation funding you know we mentioned naca but they they also have and i can't remember the name of it you're gonna have the, to help the me legacy out. amendment so thank so you so that's yes yeah the outdoor heritage fund is the wild card that makes minnesota um kind of the shining gem of creating habitat in the, this era yes so they have you know, they have a lot of opportunities to bring in outside partner dollars through those mechanisms. So so basically, when we get a dollar from that Onyx party, you know, mm -hmm. it was very generous of them to support and throw that party and raise funds for our acquisition program. But we can partner that with a chapter dollar, with a private donor dollar, and use those to leverage uh, NACA funds, to leverage those those legacy amendment funds. Yep. And that $1, when we can utilize it to leverage those funds, we can leverage 39 more. Mm -hmm. And like I said, Minnesota is the extreme example. I did the math last year, and nationwide, we were still on average running about 14 to $15 for every dollar we brought in. So stop and say that again. For like, <laughs> I, I know I sound like Jerry Lewis right now, um, and for folks that are younger than know who Jerry Lewis is, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it is a showstopper in my opinion. Like when you can say we can get an individual contribution, you could go on bird dogs for habitat right now, right. And donate $1 on behalf of the Italia, Spinoni Italianos. I wanted to just <laughs> say that, um, $1 on Spinoni's. And it's going to get matched across the country for land acquisition by a magnitude of, say it with me, Eric, 14, yeah, 14 times. Ones. Yeah. What, yeah. You know, what other thing can you invest in or make a donation to that's going to get multiplied 14 times over? Uh, not a lot that I can think of. That's why I, uh, that's why I like this program. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, you know, I think that's something that... Every member, every donor, every corporate partner out there, you know, if you care about public access, and not only does that public access places for us to go chase our bird dogs and go, you know, take photos of butterflies with your little ones, go for a hike, it's creating habitat for you pick the species at a magnitude of 14 to 1. I just, that makes me incredibly proud. Like being an employee of the organization, that's one of the things that I'm like, you know, when other jobs have come up over the years, like, hell no. <laughs> I, love, <laughs> I love that we have an opportunity to make that kind of impact on something that, you know, on a personal level, I care so deeply about. And I know you guys do as well. I mean, that's, that's just, that's cool as shit, you know? And I could say that on a <laughs> podcast, right? <laughs> All right. Uh, let's talk a little bit more specifically. John, let's bounce to build a wildlife area. How does that um, build a wildlife area tool work from your perspective? Yeah. So um, I guess the thing I'd start out in saying, like you, you call it a tool and it is a tool. You know, we have, we have a lot of other initiatives going on to impact, you know, private land. We work with easements, you know, there's a ton of different tools we have. Build a wildlife area is one of them uh, with permanent protection and increasing public access. I think what I, I kind of thought about this before the call, but uh, there's kind of three things that in my mind make it really unique. One, it's the only one of its kind that focuses exclusively on, on upland birds and their habitats. Uh, it's one of the only ones that permanently secures places for bird hunters to hunt. That's, you know, again, that's why we love our job. Um, you know, it's a, it's ability to leverage funds and Eric just, you know, nailed that on its head, you know, bringing 
chapter dollars, donors, et cetera, you know, bringing all that together. We're really in a unique position with our ability to, to build partnerships, to be that catalyst, to, to pull all that stuff together and make big things happen. Um, and the third one, I would say, you know, kind of ties in with that, that t &E species. You know, I mentioned mm -hmm. the gopher tortoise earlier, but there's a wide variety of other natural resource benefits to land acquisition that, you know, I hadn't thought of all these things, but it, it broadens our support. You know, we have a number of projects that wouldn't have happened if there wasn't water quality benefits. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's water quality, there's protection of, of watersheds, there's carbon sequestration. Many of these projects improve soil health, provide habitat for TNE species. Again, you know, so check T and yeah, T and E species. So, so some people are going to like, what's a T and E species? Explain <laughs> sure. that for yeah. Yeah, threat, threatened and endangered species. So there's there's state and there's federal threatened, you know, mm -hmm. species designations. But you know, again, just the the broad values of of this, you know, this program, land acquisitions can make you know many things come together. Again providing more and more support across, you know, different groups of people. And it just makes our program that much stronger. Yeah. I think about threatened and endangered species. And, you know, for whatever reason, the species that comes to mind for me is the Topeka Shiner. And I can remember, a right, like, and this is a, a little minnow, right, that lives in streams in the Midwest, right? Yep. And... So there's a threatened endangered species called the Topeka Shiner minnow. And one of the ways that we can create funding to create habitat for pheasants, for quail, and public access for hunters is, you know, there's places where this minnow lives within the uplands. We buy a piece of property that protects the stream in this minnow and it creates habitat for pheasants, quail, you know, waterfowl, you name it, and access for all of us, right? And otherwise, you know, it, it, if we weren't intermediary uh, intermediaries, easy for me to say, to help facilitate <laughs> land acquisitions like this, you know, it would go down a far different regulatory path, right? So that so there's there's opportunity there. You know, you mentioned yeah, we might not always um, be able to use pheasants or quail as the lever, but there's a benefit there for pheasants and quail, even if there's a different lever. I know I went a long ways with the the Topeka Shiner, but but that's that's an example of a real case scenario, right, John? That's that's spot on. And you mentioned pheasants and quail. You know, we can also think about all of our other upland game birds across the country from sharp-tail grouse to California quail. You know, there's yeah. the, the unique thing about this program, and in my opinion, as well as there's, there's a place for land acquisition in every state. You know, it may not be an obvious one. There may not be a ton of support for additional, you know, public land ownership even. Uh, but there is a place, you know, where we can, we can make things happen. Eric, it looked like you wanted to add something to that. Uh, no, no, I, I completely agree. I was going to say, you know, if you're looking for an example of, you know, another species of wildlife that is tied in with our organization, look at all the efforts behind the monarch butterfly and their mm -hmm. migration path. I mean, we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres of quality nesting and brood rearing habitat through CRP with their pollinator programs. And, you know, the more opportunities we find to protect the habitats that are important to upland birds that tie in with, you know, hundreds of other wildlife species, right. the, the goal is the same. The goal is the quality habitat. And that's what our organization always comes back to. Yeah, right on. And I do think there be increasing acquisitions in the bobwhite quail range because of, you know, bobwhite quail are the indicator species right it's the it's it's the species for the oak savanna in the grasslands of the southeastern united states and it's when when you have healthy habitat that's providing benefits to bobwhite quail as you mentioned is um, both of you mentioned gopher tortoises 
right? Like you might not, or the red cocaine wolf pack, you know, all these things that you might not immediately connect with quail, but there's a whole suite of species that depend on the exact same types of habitat that bobwhite quail need. And it leads me to, you know, thinking about acquisition that was just completed about a year ago in South Carolina. So it, that takes me to, like, Eric, let's run down a couple of highlights of Build a Wildlife Area. What are some of the projects that come to mind for you of some of the best signature acquisitions through this program? All right. So as, as far as, you know, completed projects, that's one thing. You know, we've got a myriad of projects that have been on this podcast already. I know some of your listeners have probably heard you talk about the Finden area, hmm. uh, the Joe Dugan area. You know, a lot of the listeners probably knew Joe Dugan or hmm. know Joe Dugan. You know, he's still around. He's still a lot of our stuff uh, at Clancy in the Capito area. You know, Minnesota has you know, dozens and dozens of acquisitions that are that are incredible. As far as highlights, just from the last couple of years, you look at that Bob White Hills acquisition. You know, that's that the is South an, Carolina one. Yes, yes, that's South Carolina, and that was a really uh, wonderful example of uh, us getting involved in working with new partners in new geography to protect and enhance uh, quail habitat and opportunity for quail hunters in the southeast. You know, that's 774 acres of quality habitat you know just in the last few months we've been working with our team down there to implement a, a management strategy for that property to make sure it stays quality quail habitat which is a challenge in the southeast with the growing season that they have you know and that's something that new information to me being from the midwest i you know, the idea that we have to burn is is something i'm comfortable with but the idea that you have to burn and thin and do it every single year or you're losing the habitat that's new um, but, you know, opportunities like that, working with the South Carolina DNR, the South Carolina uh, Conservation Bank, you know, great new partners. The Forest Service down there mm -hmm. is going to be another you know, exceptional partner we're working with. Uh, we got properties like the Mallet property in Ohio. We mentioned, you know, utilizing grant funding. They have Clean Ohio funds that were tied with that. And we're partnering with the state on management for that property. Yeah, another one that's close to home, I'm going to throw it out there, the South Skunk River Wildlife Area, about 45 minutes northwest of me. You know, working with great partners here in Iowa for uh, a push that's close to 500 acres, and it connects multiple pieces of public access property in a state that sorely needs it. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's you can go out there. We did a dedication there last summer, and, you know, driving around on a side-by-side -side with the management biologist and some of the folks who were involved in that project. and watching the sunset over that floodplain, listening to roosters crow. That, that, that's mm -hmm. just the absolute capstone for a wonderful project. And we hope to continue to add more to that complex. Mm -hmm. So as, as far as completed projects go, you know, we could sit here and talk about that, but the really exciting stuff for me is the upcoming projects. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, we, we have 10,000 plus acres of projects at various stages of development. Mm. And, you know, we're talking a geographic range from the southeast to the northwest. Mm. We have a magnificent number of projects. You know, we're not advertising them because, you know, they're th throughout that process, you know, we might have just identified a property and begun to talk to the landowner. We have properties that, you know, we're in possession of we've actually acquired and are currently fundraising for but you know they're in pf ownership and we haven't transferred those to their permanent managing entities yet yeah um, but the fun part of this process is utilizing those upcoming projects to build new partnerships to strengthen the partnerships that we have and to continually work with those state and national teams to grow our strategic plan you know, and that's what John's, John and I have been working with uh, the state level teams a lot to figure out, you know, we don't want to shotgun approach this. You know, we turn down most of the projects that get proposed to us. We want to make sure when we're doing an acquisition, it hits on both our habitat priorities for upland birds and what fits in with our state strategic plan and 
and projects that fit in with those state agency plans, the Fish mm -hmm. and Wildlife Service plans or, or the national pheasant and quail plans. Mm -hmm. But, you know, making sure that we can develop those and bring those together is, is a really big picture effort. It's really exciting to see, see it take shape. You talk, so you, you and John approach it from very strategic, cerebral uh, point of view. I'll go to the visceral and the emotional just for a moment. I, I think about some of these projects, the Cupido you mentioned, which is a, Cupido is Latin a reference to prairie chickens. It's in Western Minnesota. And it's like I mentioned earlier, you know, we know that there are leks for prairie chicken booming grounds where where uh, ancient Lake Agassiz um, existed. And there's booming grounds on this piece of land where one of the last remaining populations of prairie chickens live in western Minnesota. And there's also pheasants. There's sharp tails. There are moose that live on this property, right? And in through Build a Wildlife Area, created habitat that now permanently protected from everything from prairie chickens to moose. Like think about that statement. It, it, at moose, I automatically think about the Teton, Teton River area in, in Montana, which is another project that's got moose, grizzly bears, <laughs> and pheasants. <laughs> and we hunted on that uh, during last year's <laughs> rooster road trip. Um, and, and, and maybe the most emotional one connection of me, and it, you know, I contribute every year to build a wildlife area through Bird Dogs for Habitat, and I help market it, right? So I don't have, I have a very small role in these acquisitions coming to fruition, but I, I do play a role, right? So it's, it's personal. And I thought about this maybe five years ago, my, my wife's family... Um, her sister lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So stay with me. This is I know I know this sounds like a long story, but so for Christmas one year, Meredith and I and our short hairs, we had three at the time, loaded up the, the family truckster and we left Minnesota on December twenty second and we drove all the way to Santa Fe, New Mexico. And the halfway point um was Kansas, the Veterans Wildlife Area, created through Build a Wildlife Area in western Kansas. And we we got out of the truck after driving for a day and a half. And some of the most memorable moments of my life, my marriage, my dog's lives, um, occurred on that Kansas public property on the way on Christmas Eve with everybody I care about around me, you know, dog on point, rooster flushes. And we went, continued on to Santa Fe where Meredith's parents had flown down from the Twin Cities and her sister's family and prepared a Christmas Eve meal of pheasants that we had bagged with our dogs on this holiday trip on public property that yeah maybe only threw 10 bucks to it right or 50 bucks and i helped promote it but i had a role in it i know it seems like just a small role but we all can play a small part whether like just throw your five bucks towards the labrador retriever we'll match it and we'll use that to create properties that when you set foot on it and you know that you had some small role in making that happen, it's like, that's, that's why I work for an organization like this because it, it means so much to me. And I know that's true of so many of our members. I know it's true of you guys. I know it's a little sentiment, sentimental. No, I've been accused of that before. But it, man, it, it's just such a good feeling when you can set foot on property like that with people you love and your bird dogs. And you know that you had a role in making that happen. I, John, I see you nodding your head. I know you've had experiences like that too, right? 
Absolutely. Probably nothing quite that inspiring, but uh, no, that, that's why we're in it. You know, um, the, the fact that, uh, you know, most, most hunters, they want more places to hunt. And the fact that you can contribute a small amount, know where your dollar's going and actually, mm -hmm. you know, have something in the end is, mm -hmm. is a cool feeling. So like you said, you know, every, everyone that contributes can feel like they're a part of that. It's something they can set boots on, you know, run their dog on, and it's something that's going to be there forever. So yeah. very cool. Go ahead, Eric. Yeah, I, I've got a story as well, and I'm, I'm going to share it quick because it's, it kind of ties it into everything I've been working on. You know, that South Skunk River Wildlife Area property in Jasper County, Iowa. You know, that uh, when you talk about getting tied into everything we're, we're trying to, to protect, you know, that is a cool property where, you know, as the regional rep, I worked with that chapter. And, you know, we have some incredible volunteers in Jasper County and a bunch of other chapters in central Iowa that supported that, you know, Mahaska and the North Polk chapter, Powasheet chapter, you know, a bunch of great chapters supported that. But, you know, having been at the banquet, hearing them talk about that, watching people, you know, bid on auction items and play games and raffles, knowing that that was one of their priorities, mm -hmm. watching the chapter get involved in that acquisition, you know, getting involved with our partners at the Iowa DNR and everybody else involved in that project and then turning around the next year and going out and getting to explore that with my family. Mm -hmm. You know, I got to watch my wife shoot her first rooster on that property. Mm -hmm. You know, I, opportunities like that aren't possible if we don't all work together to make these projects happen. And that's what makes it so special. Right. Um, that's a great story. That'll be a memory that will live with you forever, right? Like you helped, small role that you helped make that happen. And now the first bird your wife ever bagged came oh, to yeah. fruition there. That's awesome. Yep. That was a Thanksgiving morning we will never forget. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, John, let's, let's uh, round third and start closing this out. Give us uh, the big... The big numbers. What's um? What are the overall stats to build a wildlife area for folks? That, you know, we've we've dove deep into the emotional. <laughs> now, now what? Now give us the statistical. You bet. So, like you said, our our acquisition efforts date back to nearly when the organization started. But dating back that far, you know, we've permanently protected over two hundred and twenty thousand acres across the country. Um, those acres permanently secured, also secured public hunting access. So really cool. Um, you know, just this past year, we, we pulled an annual report together. Uh, we completed 27 acquisition projects in 2022, uh, totaling just under 3,400 acres. Hmm. Um, and like Eric said, you know, the exciting stuff is, is what's coming. And we have we have active active projects going on. This number changes it seems like every day, but we have at least twelve states where we have active projects going on. Um, so it's again like really cool time to be involved and see all this stuff, you know, coming to fruition. Right on. And for listeners, I, we we're not trying to be coy by not talking about specific projects or states where they're happening. Like it's there's sensitivity around land acquisitions for all sorts of reasons that these projects don't always come together they can fall apart for a variety of reasons there's so we don't we're not bringing up specific projects specific places um with the hopes that you know we don't want to rock the boat and we want to get it to the close so that's that's why um, we're being a little bit uh, ambiguous about projects before they're done. Um, what we can tell you is our track record, 220,000 acres of permanently protected lands that you, your family, and your dogs can enjoy um, that are, again, permanently protected. I, I'll point you towards... Go to pheasantsforever.org, quailforever.org. Under the conservation tab on the website, the second navigation um, that, that you'll find on that tab is build a wildlife area. Click on that. 
and you can start to see some of the the land acquisitions through the map there and um, take a look there's some videos there the south skunk river first video that pops up for me that project that uh, eric talked about and first place is wife bagger bagged a rooster on you can take a look at that video right there on the landing page for build a wildlife area um all right i'm gonna ask you both for uh for closing thoughts um one more reminder build a wildlife area is the home for all donations this year for the bird dogs for habitat campaign so take a look at the leaderboard birddogsforhabitat.org and special thanks to the partners that are helping us uh, kick off this campaign orvis perina pro plan sport dog brand the North America Versatile Hunting Dog Association, and Rufflin' Kennels. All right. Closing thoughts. Eric, you get to go first. Yeah, I think my closing thoughts, you know, I, I believe John hit this earlier. But honestly, my closing thoughts is if you care about upland habitat, if you care about public access, there is a way that you can be involved in this. Whether it's, you know, hopping online right now and voting for your English set or your German short hair, whether it's attending a local banquet. I know we're wrapping up the, uh, the spring banquet season, mm -hmm. but there are some events still happening. We'll have some going through the, the rest of the summer here. You know, whether it's, you know, going out to a chapter event and helping with habitat work or upgrading to a life or a patron membership. Everybody has the opportunity to get involved and make projects like this possible by working through pheasants forever and quail forever. And once you've done that, go outside, bring your kids, bring your family, bring a friend and share that experience with them and make sure that they see the importance of that because not only will that live throughout their life, it'll be a priority for them, they'll value it. And even if it's just affecting the way that they vote, you know, getting involved with our government affairs team, it all makes an impact, it all makes a difference. Yeah. Great point. John, what's your closing thought? Well, that's a tough one to follow, I would say. But, um, you know, again, I, I'm i just proud that, uh, you know, to work for an organization that has, has prioritized habitat protection and access is huge. You know, the other side of it, and you, you kind of touched on this, land acquisition is not easy. It's complex, and there's oftentimes risk associated with it. Um, you know, the fact that our, our organization is willing to take that risk, you know, to meet the needs of, of hunters and our membership is huge. And so, you know, when, when folks talk about different organizations or, you know, charities or things that they contribute to, or even taxes, they want to know where their dollars are being spent. Hmm. You know, this is, this is an obvious one that, that has meaning, holds meaning over the long term, and, you know, it's just cool to be a part of that. Yeah, right on. Um, I want, because I know that folks listening, there's there's somebody out there that is interested in, well, there's somebody interested in leaving their land for this purpose. And if, if you're thinking along those lines, Eric, you're the person that they reach out to. How do they get in touch with you? You bet. So they can they can get in touch with me a variety of ways. They're they're welcome to give me a call. My information is on the website. If it's on the annual report, you can reach out to your local chapter, uh, your development officer, your regional rep, um, and get in contact with me. My phone number is 515-423-4747. My email is esitsmetpheasantsforever.org. Cool. And then I'm certain that there's somebody that works for a state agency or a federal agency at, you know, is looking, they got something in mind for a land acquisition or helping build a complex. John, you're the person that they would reach out to. How do they, um, how do they connect with you? Yeah. Same, same situation that everything's on the website. Um, my, my email is jlocks, L-A-U-X at pheasantsforever.org. Cool. Fellas, thank you very much. This is, um, um, something near and dear to my heart, if you didn't know that already. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm so passionate um, about 
our land acquisition efforts and build a wildlife area in particular, I just think it's, John, you said it perfectly. Like people in this day and age want to know where their dollars go to for whatever reason, you know, charity wise, you can see really clearly where the dollars go to um, through land acquisition efforts with pheasants forever and quail forever. So I'll point people one, one more time, conservation tab, build a wildlife area is right underneath that. Or you can go to birddogsforhabitat.org and uh, have a little fun. Vote for your favorite dog. Make a gift that'll uh, last forever. For Eric Sitzma, for John Locks, I'm Bob St. Pierre reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks.